Thank you, Beth. Choir. Last week we concluded our study in First Peter, and today we continue with Peter as we move into Second Peter. There is some controversy surrounding this letter as well. Controversy concerning the authenticity of the letter and also the authorship of it. E.F. Scott wrote, it is far inferior in every respect to 1 Peter. It is the least valuable of the New Testament writings. Harper's commentary declared no New Testament document had a longer or tougher struggle to win acceptance than 2 Peter. So there are objections to this letter. There are questions about the authorship and also its authenticity. And one of the primary reasons for that was the early church's reluctance to accept it. It was not quoted for the first two centuries of the church, and it only gained acceptance in the fourth century, late in the fourth century. One commentator wrote, The great interest of Second Peter lies in the very fact that it was the last book of the New Testament to be written and the last to gain entry into the New Testament. Another objection concerning its authorship is that the style of First Peter and Second Peter is very different. Jerome wrote, Simon Peter wrote two epistles, of which the authenticity of the second is denied by many because of the difference of the style from the first. There is no question, but that the style and the subject matter of Second Peter is very different from First Peter. But there are reasons to believe that this is a letter indeed written by Simon Peter, because the author refers to himself as Simon Peter. He says that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He said that he was an eyewitness of these things, and he also says that this is the second letter that he has written personally. I believe that it was a letter written by Simon Peter. The purpose of this letter is different from 1 Peter. He wrote this letter to combat heresy within the church. He is dealing with a false doctrine. He is dealing with false prophets. And he is not real kind in his description of those false prophets. He refers to them as being exploiters. He says they were immoral that they were arrogant, people who denied the second coming of Christ, they were unscriptural, and they were doomed. So Simon Peter did not mince words when it came to his opinion concerning these false prophets. John Flavel wrote, By entertaining of strange persons, men sometimes entertain angels unaware. But by entertaining of strange doctrines, many have entertained devils unaware. It is a serious issue. The issue of right doctrine is a serious issue. And that is what Peter is dealing with. So today we begin our journey in Second Peter, beginning in chapter number 1, verse number 1. 
Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, as I've already said, Simon Peter has written this letter to combat false doctrine. The way he does that is to present to us a true faith, a genuine faith. Now, you'll notice in verse number 1, he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind. Now, understand that 1 Peter was written to Jewish believers. 2 Peter is written to Gentile believers. So when he mentions a faith of the same kind, he is saying that the faith of the Gentiles is the same faith of the Jew. So he begins to talk to us about salvation, how a person is saved. And he says, whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, we are saved the same way. We are saved by the grace of God. And he tells us that through Jesus Christ, we receive by grace the righteousness of Christ in our life. That is precisely what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse number 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible says then, by the grace of God, we receive the righteousness of Jesus in our life. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Are we righteous? If we know Jesus, we are. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but His righteousness then has been imputed to us. He goes on in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he says that this righteousness comes by grace. So we are righteous then because of the grace that is given to us through Christ.
And the result of that righteousness or that grace is peace. So we have grace and peace as a result of the righteousness that is imputed to us. So he talks about the grace of God and then the goodness of God in verse number 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So Peter is saying that we are benefactors of God's goodness. When he mentions the glory of God, probably he is referencing the transfiguration where the glory of God was made manifest. The glory of God was revealed there on the Mount of Transfiguration. The word excellence that is used there probably refers to the mighty acts of God, as Peter is reminding us of the powerful, mighty acts of God. Sometimes I, I, I think of, uh, about those acts of God when the, the Hebrews came to the Red Sea and, and, and the Bible says that it parted and they walked across on dry land. When they were in the wilderness having nothing to eat and the Lord miraculously provided manna for them. During the time of Jesus on earth when he healed the sick, when, he, when he, the, the lame could walk and the blind could see and even call the dead back to life. So the goodness of God, we are benefactors of the goodness of God. And then he talks about the gift of God in verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. All of this comes as a gift. The word received that is used there refers to winning something by lot. Dave McFadden wrote, the idea is that something has been won like the lottery. A person who wins the lottery has nothing to brag about. Their winning isn't due to their intelligence or worth. They simply won the lottery. So that is the word that he uses when he says that we have received this. In other words, it has come to us, not because we are deserving, but by the grace of God. Well, what did we receive when we become a follower of Christ? What did we receive? Look there at verse number four. For by these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Now, the pagan philosophers said that man was divine. All he had to do was act on it, because he was already divine. What Simon Peter is saying is that as we put our faith in Christ by God's grace, we become partakers of the divine nature. So we receive a divine nature. He continues, however, in verse 4, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Folks, did you know that even the believer has to fight the temptation of sin? I mean, when we receive the divine nature of the Lord, we still have a sinful nature that we have to deal with. And so he says then that we have escaped the corruption. Yeah, that, was, that was a heresy in the New Testament that was dealt with many times of the antinomians who believed that, that we are under grace, therefore we don't have to worry about sin. We don't have to worry about any of those things because grace is greater than sin. In fact, they even said that 
the more you sin, the more grace there is, because grace overcomes sin. But Simon Peter says that God gives us power over corruption. So we have a faith of the same kind. Whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, Peter is saying that we are saved the same way. But now then, look at verse number 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply uh, moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and your knowledge, self-control, your self-control, perseverance, etc., etc., etc. In other words, he is saying that now then that we are saved, we are not finished. That is the beginning. So we are to add to it. He mentions our faith. That, that is the beginning point. That is when we are saved. He says in verse number three that this is a true faith. It is a genuine faith. So recall, now always remind yourself as we go through this book that he is dealing with false doctrine. So he says, now this is the true faith. This is the genuine faith. Barclay wrote, for Peter, faith is the conviction that what Jesus Christ says is true and that we can commit ourselves to his promises and launch ourselves on his demand. So he's talking about this true faith that is foundational. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So that is the beginning point, folks. It's when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? You put your faith in Jesus Christ, by God's grace, we are saved. But that's not the ending point. There's some people who never get much past that. He says, no, you're supposed to build on that. That is the foundation. But he says, now, we have to build on that foundation. What do we build? Add to your faith moral excellence. The word that he uses has two distinct directions or Characteristics, first of all, in its general sense, it refers to efficiency. It refers to land that is fertile. It refers to a man who is a good citizen or a good friend, uh, a good person. But the word also carries with it the idea of courage. Add to your faith moral excellence, courage. Here's what I believe that he said. Plutarch said, God is a hope of, not an excuse for cowardice. So, moral excellence then... Add to your faith moral excellence. Moral excellence is a commitment to Jesus Christ and the courage to live for Jesus Christ in a compromising world. Okay, now I want you to think about that because we're not doing a lot of that. Add to your faith moral excellence. Moral excellence is a commitment to Jesus Christ and the courage, the courage to live out. That commitment in a sinful world. And then he says, add to your moral excellence knowledge. We are to continue learning. Interesting story. Albert Einstein attended a dinner party. There was a young college student sitting next to him at the table, not knowing who he was. And the student said, what are you actually by profession? To which he replied, I devote myself to the study of physics. The student said, you mean to say you study physics at your age? I finished mine a year ago. We are always to be growing. We have not arrived. And so we are to grow in knowledge. The word that is used there refers to general intelligence or common sense. If you are a child of God, add to your faith, moral excellence, and then knowledge. Common sense, 
We don't have a lot of that today either. In fact, I read a story about a 21-year-old fella in Wichita, Kansas, who was arrested for trying to pass two $16 bills. So sometimes we don't seem to have the kind of common sense that we need. It also refers to a practical knowledge. So whenever he says add to it knowledge, he is talking about common sense, but also practical knowledge. Barclay wrote that knowledge which enables a man to decide rightly and to act honorably and efficiently in the day-to-day circumstances of life. Now, this is what the Bible refers to when it is speaking of deacons, that they are to be men of common sense. That there is to be a practical intelligence. There is to be common sense. So, that doesn't sound real spiritual, does it? I mean, whenever we're talking about salvation and so forth, but he is saying that you've got to add to it. All right? So, faith then is whenever we are saved, we are converted. But he says, now, you have to add to your faith. Not to be saved, you're already saved. But if you're going to be legitimate, if you're going to be authentic, he says you have to add to that moral excellence and then knowledge. And then he says, add to knowledge, self-control. Be in control of yourself. There was a well-dressed woman walking down Rodeo Drive in Hollywood, California. A beggar came up to her asking her for money. And he said, "I, I haven't eaten anything in four days. She looked at him and said, boy, I wish I had your willpower. Self-control is the ability to take a grip of oneself, to be in control of oneself. Aristotle said there are four stages in life. There's perfect temperance, that is passion entirely subjugated to reason, unbridled lust. Reason is entirely subjugated to passion, incontinence. Reason fights, but passion prevails and then self-control. Reason fights against passion and prevails. He says, so add to your faith. You start out, you're converted, add to your faith. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control. And then add to self-control, perseverance. Cicero defines this as the voluntary and daily suffering of hard and difficult things for the sake of honor and usefulness. Self-control is the overcoming of um, the temptation of pleasure. See, that's the reason that we need to be in control of ourselves to overcome the temptation of pleasures. Whether it be food or it be something else, we are to be in control of ourselves to overcome that. The word perseverance that he uses refers to overcoming the pressures of life. We have a lot of pressures in life, and we are to overcome those. We are not to succumb to them. Like Job lost everything, and then Job said, Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. The Apostle Paul overcame the pressures. He said, I've not arrived, but but I press on. And that should be our testimony. We have not arrived, but we press on. So whenever he talks to us about this, he says that, that we are to overcome the temptations of pleasure, but we also must overcome... The pressures of life. And then he says, add to perseverance, godliness. Now this word looks in two directions. There is a vertical aspect of it that speaks about me being right with God. 
To be godly, I have to be right with God. There's also a horizontal dimension. To be godly, I have to be right with my fellow man. So it is both ways. It is right with God, and it is also right with my fellow man. Then he says, in brotherly kindness. Philadelphia is the word that is used. Add to your godliness, brother kind, uh, brotherly kindness. Now, I think the point that he is making there, and this is speaking about the affection we have for each other here. Okay. There are different words, different Greek words for love, but this speaks about the affection we have for each other. Now, the truth of the matter is, sometimes we want to separate ourselves from other people, don't we? Or is that just something with me? Because the truth is, people can be an aggravation. They can be a real nuisance. Is that right? And so sometimes we just want to separate ourselves from them. Someone sent me the story of, um, uh, it was a, an upscale church in a suburb, beautifully appointed, all the people who went there drove nice cars and dressed nicely and so forth. And so one Sunday morning there was an old cowboy who wandered into the service. He had on scuffed boots and a pair of jeans and his shirt was a little tattered and had his hat in his hand, his Bible under his arm. And so he came in, the people saw him and they sort of scattered. You know, they didn't want necessarily to sit with him. And, and uh, so after the service, the pastor called him. He says, you know, I want you to do something for me. And he said, all right. He said, before you ever come back here to worship again, would you ask God what would be appropriate attire for you to wear to worship here? And he said, I'd be happy to. Well, the next Sunday he came back and the people were all there. They were nicely dressed and so forth. And the cowboy came in. His boots were scuffed and he had on his jeans and he had on his old shirt. His hat in his hand, Bible under his arm. And once again, the people sort of moved aside. They didn't want to be next to him. And after the service was over, the, the pastor got him. He said, you know, I asked you last time you were here if you would ask God what would be appropriate for you to wear when you come to worship. He said, yes, sir. He said, well, did you ask him? He said, I sure did. He said, well, what did God tell you? He said, God said he didn't have a clue. He had never been in this church. So, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we separate ourselves from each other, and we're less as a result of it. One of the sad things for me is, is uh, and, and, I, and I see this, I, when family members are separated from each other for whatever the reason. You know what you have taught me since I, Linda and I have been here? That the family is stronger together. That we are weaker separated, but we are stronger together. And, and it saddens me whenever I see families that are separated from each other for whatever the reason, because I know that they are. But the same thing is true with churches. Churches separate themselves from each other, so we don't pray for each other. And uh, we don't lift each other up and encourage each other, and we're weaker as a result of it. This is one of the things that really troubles me. I read statistics and those kinds of things, and, and uh, I read an article that said that when... When uh, Muslims reach the point where they represent 2 to 3% of a society, that they begin to have a dramatic impact on that society. In fact, I asked our guide in Greece, and uh, she told me, she said, that's, exact, that's exactly right. It's certainly true here. I, I know that the population of the United States is about 3% homosexual. And then I, I look at the influence that is there. I, I say, how in heaven's name can 
two, three percent of a group have such an impact. And folks, there are so many of us and we don't have any influence or very little. You know, as someone said, we're many, but not much. How is that? Because we've separated. We don't come together. We don't pray for each other. We don't encourage each other. We don't lift each other up. We, we need to come together in prayer and come together in commitment to those things that are important. Brotherly kindness. Add to your brotherly kindness love, which is agape. It is undeserved and it's unconditional. Now, what's the results of this faith? Peter is saying that this is genuine faith. Understand that he is combating false doctrine, and he does that by presenting genuine faith. He said, this is the real stuff. This is real. This is legitimate. Now, what are the results of this faith? He said, fruitfulness. Look at verse number 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever, whenever this is characteristic of our life, we're building on our faith. He says, then you're not unfruitful concerning the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think also we are evangelistic because Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides me and I am him, he bears much fruit. So there's fruitfulness. And then vision. Look at verse number 9. For he who lacks these qualities, now this is someone who did not build on their faith. They have faith, but they didn't build on it. They didn't grow on it. He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So he says that this person who did not build, their vision is impaired. If, if we are not building our faith by adding these things, he says, then our, our vision is impaired. He said we're short-sighted. And that is the reason that there are so many Christians who despair today, because they don't see very far. They are short-sighted, only seeing what is here, but they don't see very far. And then, did you notice there, he says, and um, having forgotten his purification to me, that means he begins to doubt his salvation. And I believe in eternal security. I believe that if, if a person is saved, that person is saved, forever saved. But if you're not building on that faith, then you begin to wonder, am I really saved? Because you don't see the legitimacy of which Peter speaks here. And then he talks about security. Verse number 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Now, what he is saying is that our spiritual eyes are open. He said, if you build on your faith, then your spiritual eyes are open so that you do not stumble. That does not mean that you do not sin. But it does mean that you keep getting up and going forward. You're on the journey. And then in verse number 11, For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. In other words, we're going to arrive at our destination. And he says, The Lord has abundantly supplied heaven for you. We're going to arrive in heaven. And the Bible tells us that it is a place of beauty, it is a place of health, it is a place of reunion, a place that the Lord has provided for us. So, we are on the journey, and he says it is important then that when you are saved, when you come to know the Lord, you have faith. But you need to build on that. Build on that. That's the only way that you're going to enjoy the journey. Now, your destiny is 
is secure. But if you're going to enjoy the journey, then you're going to have to build on the faith that you put in Jesus Christ. So, let me conclude. We begin with faith. Our journey begins when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we are born into the family of God. That is the beginning. We begin with faith. We add to faith those qualities that make the Christian life authentic. He says, all right, so you have been saved. You have been born again. He says, now, build on that. Build on that. All these layers. He said, you need to be, you need to be growing. You need to build on that. And the results of doing so is fruitfulness, vision, security, and joy. Peter is saying that there is a false doctrine. This is the real thing. Let me ask you a question. When people see you, when people observe your life, do they see the real thing? Do they see someone who has been born again but who has built on that faith so that they'd say, that's the real deal? That one's real. Folks, that should be our goal. That should be our commitment, that when people observe my life, they will be convinced that I'm authentic. But it only happens when we build on our faith. You have to build on it. Our gracious Father, we come to you and thanking you for the reminder that you have given to us. And Lord, uh, we come to an invitation time. I pray for those who've never taken that first step of faith that they would do so today, that they would make a commitment of their life today. I pray for Christians, Father, that we would understand the importance of building on our faith, that we uh, project to those who observe our lives authenticity, that they, would, uh, that they would see us and know what Christianity is really about. Father, we know that not only is it a blessing to others, but also it brings joy to us. And so I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in just a second, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. We extend an invitation to you. If you're here without Christ, you want to put your faith in Jesus, you come today. There will be someone to pray with you and talk with you. If you're looking for a church home, you say, that's what I need to do. Our door's open. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please. As we stand together, you come. I'll greet you as you do.